The natural state of any oppression in any place is a make or break situation, right? So if, if, you, if you're in any circumstances, take the most simple of examples if you're at work and you find that the situation for you at work is hostile, it's very difficult. And let's say there's nothing to even to do with religion, okay? It almost comes to a point where you find it very hard to work with managers, work with teams and so forth. If your relationship isn't good with people, like your manager or your colleagues, then it becomes quite hostile. And every day you go, then you're spending eight hours a day with people, whether it's school, you're being bullied, whether it's work, even a family situation then when that situation gets to a certain point, you try to handle it as best as you can. But then it gets to a point where you just can't deal with the situation. So people end up throwing the towel in and you end up giving your notice in and you resign and you leave. And that in itself is a form of your exile, right? You exit out of the scenario. There's nothing weak about this kind of situation. You've got to, you you have to assess it. And so for the Prophet Muhammad and many of the Sahabi, this is exactly what happened. And we talked about over the course of the last few weeks how things became very, very difficult for the Prophet and very difficult for the Sahabi. Now, the Prophet Muhammad specifically had protection from his uncle Abu Talib. And because Muhammad was from a very prestigious family, the Banu Hashim or the Banu Abdul Muttalib, it was very difficult to touch his family uh, or any members of his family because of the control and the power that they have. For us, it's like political influences, if you have big families, if you have big connections, corporations, you have seen it time and time again in the industries that we work in, in the systems that we work in. People who have great connections will always get away free and the people who are at the bottom will always have to pay the price for everything. And so this was exactly what was happening to the Muslims in Makkah. So those who didn't have families, who were immigrants over a period of time and they were didn't have established framework of families or, or anything else, business connections, they were being oppressed and slaves naturally were being oppressed. And it got to a point for Muhammad Sallam that after seeing everyone being tortured, and we talked about Amr bin Yasir and his mother Samaya and his father Amir, you see all these people being tortured. It became very difficult for the Prophet Muhammad Sallam. Muhammad Sallam's character was such that he was so sensitive, oversensitive you could almost say. But this is the way that Allah designed him so that he could react and dealing with situations. And this became a very difficult scenario for him. Everywhere he walked, he would go from one street to the other, to one alley to another, and he would consistently see people being tortured. And the oppression got too much. And so therefore, Muhammad Sallam and then announced, and after he received permission from Allah SWT, he announced to many of the people, the many of the followers, that you should leave this place and there is a place for you to go called Abyssinia. Abyssinia, if you don't know, is actually modern day, or Ethiopia is the modern day of Abyssinia. So this is, from Makkah, you would have to go south and you would go sort of west and it's over the, the Red Sea. So very close to Yemen uh, and, and the west of uh, Makkah. And he said, in this region is a king and he's a Christian king who takes in people who have been exiled or use it as a safe haven. So he, that's what he was known for. And a lot of these countries, a lot of these kingdoms, 
had different leaders and some of those leaders were good and some were bad, some were good and some were bad. So you get this constant back and forward. If you were fortunate enough that there was a time where those leaders were good, then you literally could take advantage of that situation. So Muhammad said to and requested the Sahabi that whoever wants to leave and take this, then take this now. And the first migration that went, the Sahabi, the number was about approximately 15 of them altogether. There was 11 men and there were four women. So, for example, the people that went, were the most famous Hazrat Uthman bin Affan, which was the, 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 the son-in-law of Muhammad Sallam. And obviously he went with his wife, Ruqayya. And then you had people like Al-Zubayr Awam, Musaib bin Umair, who was sent to Medina later on, Abdul Rahman bin Auf, who was a very close companion of the Prophet Sallam, uh, Abu Salama, his wife Umm Salama, Hatim bin Ami, Suhail bin Baida, many of these very famous Sahabi that first went. And it's interesting to see the characters because you would ask yourself, why did Uthman bin Affan go? Because he was the son-in-law of Muhammad Sallam. Was he not protected? Well, it wasn't so much that some people who were physically being tortured. Well, what about those people who had businesses? Their businesses were suffering. Nobody wanted to trade with them. Nobody wanted to engage with them. Nobody wanted to get their children married to their daughters and vice versa. And it became very, very difficult. So some people were given the option to go. And that wasn't a sign of weakness. That was just because everyone had a different scenario. Everyone associated. Muhammad was not being tortured. Allah protected him. But people at like Hazrat Bilal were being tortured. Slaves were unable to go because they were not freed. So they were continuously go through this pain. So people took the option and they went, and that was not a sign of weakness. This was the first immigration that Allah Ta'ala gave them the permission to do this. So when they went, Muhammad gave them the order and said, when you go there, seek refuge from the king and stay there until the situation for the Muslim has changed. Now you can just imagine that when I talk about the people that went, Abu Bakr Sadiq was one of them. Abu Bakr Sadiq, Hazrat Aisha narrated in this hadith, which is in Bukhari, Muhammad used to visit my father, and they were best friends, in the morning and in the evenings, continuously. And the situation became so difficult that Abu Bakr Sadiq didn't have a huge family, but he was a very well, very well-respected man. People loved him, he was very charitable, great businessman. He was the kind of person that everyone wanted to be friends with, but didn't have established families there. And it became difficult for him as well because people were impacting his business. It was, became difficult for him to see the situation, what was happening around him. And so he sought permission as well to leave. And he made that plan. So he himself got up, packed away, and he left. On the journey of leaving Makkah, Abu Bakr Sadiq, he ran into this man by the name of Al-Dagina. And Al-Dagina was a very famous individual in terms of the Quraysh. And he was from a particular tribe where he was a leader of his tribe and he was his very close connections with the tribe of Abu Bakr Sadiq. So when he saw him leaving, he said, where are you going, Abu Bakr? I've had enough. The hostility, the persecution of what's happening to the Muslims in this land, I'm leaving. And Al-Dagina says, a man like you, I mean, look, Makkah is like London. If their news gets out that people can't come to London, that people are getting abused in London, there's racism there, there's that, this will, this will cause havoc in terms of public opinion around the world that people are not going to come travel to London because of all of this public opinion and the way that people are behaving so people will feel reluctant and he said if someone like you cannot live in this land and not be respected after all the charity you do the business you being the economy you're giving it a boom then no one will be safe he said come back to Makkah and I will give you protection so when you give protection this is the way it works in those days 
if you are a powerful individual, the unwritten law is if you're in, for example, Slough, Birmingham, whatever, and you're an outsider, if I'm a local resident, if I say I'm giving this person protection, nobody is allowed to mess with you. And this is, happens with anyone. So anybody who declares he's, he's one of my guys, don't touch him. So it, nothing will happen. So they go back to Makkah and then he declares in front of everyone. They usually do this at the Kaaba, right? So they'll go to the Kaaba or they'll go to the masjid, whatever it is. And they will declare that I give this man protection. So no harm should come to this individual. Meccans weren't happy about it, but they took what they can because of Al-Daghina's support that he gave this individual. The grace said to Al-Daghina, that's fine, you give him your support. Under the condition, he keeps his mouth shut, he doesn't say anything, right? This reciting, babbling that he goes on about, we don't want to hear it. The way the compounds, the houses used to be, obviously they're, they're mud huts, right, effectively, and everyone's houses are right next door to each other. So he would sit in his house, and in the night, he would recite the Qur'an. He would pray and he recite the Qur'an, and he would do it loud. Now, Abu Bakr Siddiq was renowned for his voice. He had a beautiful recitation. Really, people would be attracted to it. And he would deliberately start reciting Qur'an loud. And what happened was all the local neighbours, the women and the children used to get really attracted. Because remember, there was no noise. It's not a big city. So at night, there's no motorways or trains running. So they can hear even a, you know, a guy whispering. So he's reciting loud and people used to come round and listen to him. And Abu Bakr Siddiq was such a character. He was so soft at heart. When he used to recite the Quran, he used to cry. So this used to bring a lot of attention. And the Quraysh began to notice that this is causing a lot of problems. So they went back to Al-Daghina and they said to him, listen, you told us that you're going to protect this man, but we gave you the condition for him not to do this. You need to speak to him and you need to stop this because this is causing more problems. So Al-Daghina goes back to Abu Bakr Siddiq and he says to him, listen, I gave you protection. I'll put my neck out. They're going to destroy our relationship, meaning my relationship with the Quraysh. And I have business dealing with them. I can't afford to things go wrong. Can you just zip it? Don't say nothing. Just keep your Islam to yourself. Don't need to give down to no one. No need to hear your recitation. Keep it in your house. So Abu Bakr Siddiq, what he does is that he started to use his front garden as a masjid. So that actually in, in Sharia, in, in Islam, the history of Islam, that was the first masjid that was built. It was actually in his, in his front courtyard. That's where he used to pray publicly. And he carried on every night. And this became a big problem. So Al-Daghina got so upset with him. He said to him, you're not listening to me. So I want you to go out back to the Kaaba and I want you to renounce my protection. Right? Renounce my protection so that, so that I don't lose any of my benefit. And so Abu Bakr had no problem with that. He goes, you can take all your protection. I don't need your protection. My protection comes from Allah. So they went there and he made that announcement and that was done. On the other side, there was an, another story of another Sahabi as well. His name was Uthman bin Muzam. Now Uthman, he himself was another one that actually went to Abyssinia. And prior to him going, Uthman was very close friends with a Quraysh leader who was an enemy of Islam, Walid bin Maghera. They were actually good friends. And you'll find a lot of this going on through the, history, through the story of the Sirah, that there's many Muslims who are really, really strong supporters of Islam and they were great Sahabis. And some of their best friends and close friends were the worst of the, of the Quraysh. So Uthman goes to Walid bin Maghera and says to him, can you give me protection so that I can at least 
do what I need to do in Makkah. So Wali Baghera says, okay. So he goes out, same thing, goes into the Kaaba and announces, I'm going to give protection to this man so no one is to touch him. Over a period of time, Uthman used to walk the roads, go to the alleys just to see his Muslim brothers. And everywhere he went, he used to see people getting tortured, people being mishandled, people being abused, no trade happening, business are suffering, killed, children are crying, wives are suffering, slaves are being tortured. And this was too much. And then the guilt hit him. And he thought to himself, look at this, we are the same Muslims in the same town. And yet they are being tortured for their religion. And they have the option to leave it, leave their religion so that they can then be incorporated into the way of kufr and no one will say nothing to them. And here I am seeking a protection from a man and I'm having to witness all of these Muslim brothers and sisters getting tortured. So this really killed him. So he went back to Walid bin Maghera and he said to him, friend, I don't need your protection. He goes, you do realize they're going to deal with you. My protection only comes from Allah. And I was stupid to think that I needed it from you, a human being. My protection comes from Allah. I cannot bear to see other Muslims being tortured while I walk free and unprotected. So he said, okay, fine. He goes, let's go to the Kaaba and then announce it. So they went to the Kaaba and he didn't announce the protection. Uthman then walks into an assembly. Now what happens is every now and again, they have special guests coming in, right? So those special guests, it could be like a little small concert, it could be stand-up show, whatever it is you want to call it. So they had a guest, a sort of like speaker, poet that come in, a man by the name of Labid. He was a very famous poet, very good. And remember, this is the in thing for the, for the Arabs. They love their poetry. It's like, um, I don't know, some famous singer doing a massive concert and everyone flocks to it. That's, ex that's the equivalent I could say. So if we lived at the time of the Quraysh and they had a famous poet, people will flock to a stadium to listen to that poet. That's, that, that's what it was like. So this man, Labid, sat there and he was sitting amongst the Quraysh. And Uthman uh, Mazim sits there with them. And this man says something in his poetry to the lines of, everything is pointless except for Allah. And he speaks and he goes, this is the truth. What you said is the truth. This is the haq. And then in a few other sentences as he's doing his poetry, he says, but all blessing will demise. There will be no more blessings. He says, you're a liar. There are blessings from Allah like heaven that will remain. It will never end. This is forever. And so one man stood up and he says, what are you talking about? And he started to attack Uthman verbally. So Uthman stood up and they started getting into a fight. So this Quraysh then got up and he hit Uthman in the face very, very hard to the point that one eye, the right eye, became black and swollen. Wali ibn Maghera was standing there and he said to, um, he said to Uthman, he said, uh, I told you you need my protection. You should have taken my protection. Otherwise, this is what they're going to do. They're going to beat you every day. He said, I want to go back so my other eye can get the blessing for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You see, the mentality is completely different for these people. Their mindset is, and this is something that they, they're incorporating a very high level. For them, this is a life and death situation. You've got no protection, you could very easily get killed. And if you get killed, your family gets impacted. For us, we don't take it at the very basic level. When it comes to work, when it comes to our careers, financials, our families, everything, we never ever seem to put our trust in Allah. This is pure, this is what we call the pure example of taqwa, where you're willing to completely forfeit everything.
for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and you say that all my protection comes from God. This is taqwa. When you do not sell yourself, you don't lower yourself as a human being so that you want something from someone because you forget that Allah is a provider in this. Right? You, if you forget this, you can become quite a despicable individual. You can become quite an annoying individual, constantly calling your friend, have you got that job for me? Can you do this for me? Can you get that for me? Can I... If you don't put your trust in Allah, if you cannot fathom the concept that He is in control of everything, then you don't have this belief in Allah in the way that you should. Then your Allah becomes like the God of any other religion. The way we perceive Allah is very unique compared to any other religion. We give Allah, Allah, the Lord of the universe, we give Him the credits that He should be. The owner of everything. We put all trust in Him. We think of everything around us as Allah's subjects to execute what He wants for us. So if this guy gives me a job, then he is the one who gave me the job. I thank him for making the effort, but Allah used him to give me the job. Do you see the difference? You see the difference? You see what will happen now? If he helps me get the job, I'll be taking him out for lunch every single week. I'll be sending him chocolates to his family, to his wife, to his kids, this, that, whatever. And I will forget to pray my two nafah to Allah. You see the difference here? There is a mindset, there is a mentality problem here. And when people say to me, why does Allah not help me? It's because your mindset is all wrong. Your mindset is all wrong. And, and this comes down to this, this one verse I used to remember, and we will come to this story when Zayb bin Haritha, who was, who was known as to be the adopted son of Muhammad Sallam, he was married to the, to the cousin of Muhammad Zainab, anha, and their marriage didn't work out. Uh, Zayb bin Haritha says, I just want to, want to divorce her. Okay? So after about a year or two of marriage, he ended up divorcing her. Then Allah ordered Muhammad Sallam to marry her. Now there was a problem here because Muhammad Sallam, again in this society, is like, oh, you're going to marry your son's ex-wife now. This is a no-no in our community, in our culture. But this is what Allah addresses. He said, he's not your son. He's not your son. He, you may have adopted him, but an adopted child never becomes your son. A father who adopts an, a kid, an adopted child, never becomes a father. If he's a boy, he becomes his brother. If it's a girl, he becomes his sister. Islam, there's no thing as adoption from that sense. So Allah addressed this in this ayah. And so Muhammad became hesitant to marry her. He said, if I do this, I almost feel like my work would be unwinded. I'll go back a hundred steps. And what are they going to say? And what did Allah say in this verse? He says, do they have more right to your fear than I do? Now, when you put it in that perspective, Allah is saying, do they have more right to your thankfulness? Do they have more right to your fear? Do they have more right to everything, though I provided everything and you turn your back on me? Now, when you, when you look at it from that perspective on the day of judgment, what, what answer could you possibly give in front of Allah? That everything that you have been given, how many times you wake up and you say, shukr alhamdulillah rabbil alameen, or you make a dua, or you... Every single point of your life, everything that goes right, whether it's for marriage, whether it's for your job, whether it's your children aboard, how many times? Or do we just say it out of just habit, Alhamdulillah, but we don't mean it, right? Because that's what it's become now as well. Everybody says it. So this is when Allah subhanahu wa makes our life difficult because you say, you say the words, but you don't mean what you say. And then people ask, oh, my life is depressed. This is why I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is why 
is because you don't really have that relationship with Allah. You think you do, but you don't. So these things are really, really important to try and try and establish in your life so you can sort of get on top of this. Abu Salama was an, was another Sahabi that even went to Abu Talib. So Abu Talib was the uncle of Muhammad Sallam who used to give who gave protection to Muhammad Sallam. So Abu Salama went to uh, Abu Talib. Now that's his like that's his nephew, and. Abu Salama said to Abu Talib, I need you to announce that you're going to give me your protection. He goes, nephew, of course I will, no problem. Abu Jahl was there. He said, hang on a minute, you've already given your protection to Muhammad. You can't go around and give your protection to him. He goes, why not? He said, he's my nephew as well. I can't give my protection to him. So Abu Jahl, the Quraysh were becoming very angry about the situation that they were just giving blanket protection to everyone and they couldn't do anything. And even at that time, that can you imagine that Abu Lahab so Abu Lahab is, is the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad but he's mentioned in the verse of the Qur'an because he was one of the worst enemies of Islam. Even Abu Lahab at this stage, he protected Abu Talib and says, I agree with him, why don't you allow him to give the protection? So even here you can see that people are seeking protection, but some of those protections they wore out. So when they worn out, that's why people started to go to Abyssinia. Okay? So the first group of people went to Abyssinia and there were 11 of them. They managed to make it there and people are coming from all over the place. So imagine this huge, beautiful city in Abyssinia. Wealthy, they're kings, they, they've got lavish palaces, everything. So people are coming in and they welcome people in. They welcome people. They're not, they're not like France, right? When all the refugees come in, you're not coming, we're going to barricade you. They welcome people in, they give them food, they give them safe haven and everything is good. What was interesting at this time of Abyssinia, so we're talking, so this happened, we're talking about round about the fourth year after the, after the Prophet received uh, prophethood. So fourth year, third year, all the difficulties started happening. A year after that, then they came to, they migrated to Abyssinia. So this was the first hijrah that was done. Then a very unusual incident happened. Whilst they were sitting, Hazrat Uthman, Ruqayyah, and all the other Sahabi, News came back to them in Abyssinia that the, all the Quraysh in Makkah become Muslim. Right? News came out that they all become Muslim. So because there was no telephone calls and you know they couldn't confirm, they thought they got so excited they can go back home. So they quickly arranged you know, transportation and they made their way back. Not all of them, but a group of them went back. But to their surprise, when they arrived in Makkah, nobody had become Muslim. Okay, the same lot, the persecution was still there, etc. So the story, backstory about that was, was Muhammad was at the Kaaba and he received the ayah from Jibreel, from Allah, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, via Jibreel on Surah Najm. So the beginning of the verses. And when he started to recite, this verse was very, very powerful. It's a very powerful verse. So he was reading out loud and the Sahabi were behind him. And because you're, it's like being at Leicester Square, if you've got Muslims who are reciting or Times Square and you're reciting and you're, you know, for example, doing uh, you know, a jama'at there and you're reciting out loud, all the people come to listen. Some people might like what you hear, some people may not, but you, it, it, it's, it's, it's a spectacle, right? People want to watch. So all the Quraysh were out there, they were listening, the children, the wives, the mothers, the traders, and the leaders. And the moment he came to the end of that surah, it was so powerful 
Muhammad went down into sujood. When he went down, the Sahabi went down. When they went, people became so emotional because of the verses were so strong. They all went down into sujood, including, and Allah revealed, even the jinns. They all went down on this verse because it was glorifying the power of Allah SWT. And there were a couple of the Quraysh leaders, even they were impacted, but the arrogance of them was that one just picked up the, the, the dirt from the floor and put it to his forehead. He goes, I'm not going down, but let the, let the mud come to my forehead. So obviously the rumours went out that they thought that they became Muslim. So when they arrived and they found that this wasn't true, then the situation was very saddening for them, very hostile. And at this point now, many of them had left because the situation became dire for them. So now, roughly about 80 Muslims left Makkah and they went to Abyssinia. So more and more people went. And one of the most famous people that we know is Jafar bin Abu Talib. This is Hazrat Ali's brother. Okay, so Jafar bin Abu Talib went to Abyssinia. Now, we're talking about 80 people. All right. So in 13 years, right, in 13 years, there were number was around about 84 people that converted. But if you're talking about 80 people within the first three years, that's a huge number of the population of the Muslims already gone. So now you get an idea, a huge number went. So when they disappeared and they went to Abyssinia, this was a problem for the Quraysh. Because the Quraysh is renowned, they are in the city of London, they're in the city of New York, the whole world knows about them. How is it going to look that when the news gets out that your own people have left your city because they feel that they're being persecuted? This is bad publicity, bad for tourism, bad for the economy. So the Quraysh leaders decided we will send Amr bin al-As. We'll send him with somebody else. And Amr bin al-As was a later became a very famous Sahabi. But Amr bin al-As was one of the delegates. He's very good at talking, dealing with the kings. Plus he had a very close relationship with the Negus. So they sent Amr bin al-As, go follow them and cause a problem and get the Negus to release all of them back. Capture them and bring them back so we can deal with them. They then make their way and they travel. Now, by this time, Jafar bin Abu Talib has already arrived in Abyssinia and they've taken safe haven and they've living amongst the people. There's no issues. Negus has got, the population is massive, so they don't know who is there, who isn't. So it only came to his attention at the time when Amr bin al-As turned up and all the delegates, the wazirs that you call them, of the, of the king, they were always happy to see Amr ibn al-As. Amr ibn al-As came with loads of presents to bribe them, right? Give them loads of, they loved the presents because they, we, they sold leather goods to them. Uh, so they used to give them these things as gifts. So he talks to the wazir, uh, missionaries that they were there, the representation of the king. They, they said, why are you here? They said, we've got some troublemakers from Mecca and they've come over to your land and we need them released. I need them back. So when we go into the assembly, I'm going to give the gift to the king and I need you guys to support me. They say, no problem. It's all, everyone's getting backhanders. Now remember, Negus, this is a Christian country. It's a Christian land. So Abu bin al-As greets the Negus. And when everyone meets, greets the Negus, they all bow. Okay, that was their custom because he's the king. So he walks in, he says, what brings you here? He says, I've come from my land. My people and my leaders have sent me because there are people that exist in your land, have emigrated, who are troublemakers. They have started this weird religion in Mecca, and they have caused immense amount of problems within families, 
within trade, within our communities. They've been attacking our customs, our traditions. We've never seen anything like this before, and they're problematic. And we feel that even though they're in your land and they've got protection, that if you keep them long enough, they're going to cause a big problem for you as well. Good argument. The Negus character, well, such an individual, he was a very pious and very fair. And he did not like the statement that Amr bin Aas made, that his statement was at the end of it, hand them over to me so I can take them back. Obviously, if you're a king, if any Tom, Dick and Harry walks into my land and says to me, hand him over, hand him over, nobody will ever come to my land thinking that we've got no protection because you just hand us right back over again. So Negus became angry. He said, I'm not going to hand anyone over. Bring those people here to me and let me speak to them and find out what they have to say. News got out to Jafar bin Abu Talib that they want to now speak to you. You're the representative. So Jafar bin Abu Talib walks into the assembly and he sees Amr bin Aas. So he knows that there's going to be now trouble. Jafar bin Abu Talib walks in and he does not bow. Now this is the first time he's met the Negus. It's a big town, right? It's a big city. No one knows anyone. So everyone's looking saying, why do you not bow? He says, we only bow to the one creator and that is Allah. We do not bow to any man. So the Negus is like, okay, fine. And he says to him, so what's the reason why you're here? He said, oh king, we were people of polytheism. We worshipped idols and we ate the meat of animals that had died, offended rules of hospitality and permitted things that were forbidden, as in the shedding of one another's blood and so on. We completely ignored matters of right and wrong. And so God sent to us a prophet from among ourselves, whose honesty and trustworthiness we knew well. He summoned us to pray to God alone and without associate. He told us respect the rights of kingship, to honour the rights of hospitality, to pray to God the Almighty and glorious, and to fast for him and to worship none other than him. And so he called us to God to affirm his oneness, to worship him and to tear down all the other stones and the idols that we and our forefathers had worshipped apart from him. So he ordered us to be truthful in our speech, to keep our trust, to respect the kingship ties and hospitality rights, and to abandon those things forbidden and the shedding of the blood. He forbade us to do anything immoral, not to tell lies, to misuse the funds of the orphans, or to make false accusations against women of virtue. And he ordered us to worship God and to associate no other God with him. And he told us to pray, to give alms and to fast. Beautiful representation because all of these are the Tawheed of Islam. Because now, remember, fifth year into Islam, there is no rules. Hukums aren't there. This is all about Tawheed now. This is all about your relationship with God, your connection with him. So this impressed the Negus. He was so impressed by what they said. He said, what you say is the truth. And this is brilliant. And he turned around and he said to everyone, no one's to touch them, you can go. So they went back and Jafar bin al-Talib told the rest of the Muslims they were overwhelmed by the fact that now they know our position and we're all good. So Amr bin al-As was with his associate. He said, this is not over yet. I've got one more trick in my bag before I leave. He goes back to the Negus. He says, I need to tell you something. He goes, what is it? He says, they say things about Jesus that is contrary to your belief and you're not going to like it. Go bring him back and ask him. So Negus was like very concerned. 
like you would be if somebody said somebody says this about your prophet you want to question that what is it you're saying about my prophet so they thinking this new religion they're saying something about Isa bin Maryam let's hear it so he brings him back into the assembly and he says to Jafar bin Abu Talib what is it your prophet says about Isa bin Maryam or Jesus Christ so Jafar bin Abdullah then responded back and he recited Surah Al-Maryam. And in this verse, he says to him that we accept that Isa is the word and the spirit of Allah that was born through Mary, the virgin, who was never touched by anyone. And he is a messenger of God and we respect him and love him. The Negus was so impressed because he was expecting something quite harsh. And he picked up a stick and he said, the length of this stick is the difference between you and me in terms of our belief. And I accept what you say about this man. You know why? Because I have been studying the scriptures that were talking about Isa bin Maryam talking about this man to come. And therefore I accept him as well. So this is like completely now turned around. This is why we know that the Negus actually became Muslim because we have proof afterwards that when the Negus did die that Muhammad did the dua for him as well because you cannot do dua for anyone that who is not Muslim right? because we know that when Abu Talib passed away so this obviously angered Amr ibn As greatly the Negus then said to all his viziers because they didn't like that he said if anyone who attacks these people they will pay four dirhams which is a lot of money and then he said to Jafar bin Abu Talib, Allah has never asked me for a bribe, so therefore I would not do the same thing. And what did he mean by that? The history of Negus was such that his father was the king of the land. And his father had a brother. So two brothers. One was a king, one wasn't. The king had only one son, which was the Negus. He was the only son. The brother had 12 sons. So the parliamentary assembly thought, that if this king dies, he's only got one son. And therefore, this is going to cause a lot of problems in our kingship and controlling our people. So they plotted with the brother, let's kill him. So the kingship comes to you and then it moves through your progeny because you've got so many. And that gives us stability. This is how the politicians play, right? They play all these stupid little games. So what happened is that they had murdered the king. And therefore, the kingship then went to the brother. So when the brother was now the king, because the, the Negus himself was very young now. So over a period of time, the Negus was almost adopted by his uncle. He was very close. And out of the 12 brothers there were, he was the 13th, right? He was a cousin. He was the smartest and the clever out of all of them. So as years went by and he grew up, the viziers or the, the, the parliamentary or MPs, you would call them, they noticed that this boy, who's not the son, is the smartest and the clever out of all of them. And their point will come where they, he will give the kingship to him. So they went to the king and said, this is going to be a problem. He's the smartest, he knows everything, and he's gaining popularity. You have two options, king. You either kill him or you exile him. He goes, how dare you ask me to kill him? You've already asked me to kill my brother. Now you want me to kill my nephew. That's not going to happen. So let's just exile him. I understand your point, but let's exile him. So captured him, they put him in the middle of the marketplace and they sold him as a slave for 400 dirhams. Because once you go into the slave trade, you can never be released. Imagine if you exile someone, put him on a donkey and send him out. He could just come back next day because he's still free. He's not owned by anyone. 
But the moment you give him as a slave, that's the rule of the world at those days. If you're a slave, you cannot give up, you cannot just walk away. Everybody will just say, no, you're a slave and you have to buy your freedom. And that price is very high. So when they came back, the king at the time went out, he got struck by lightning. I know it sounds a bit cliche, but he got struck by lightning, he died. So the vizier said, who's the kingship going to go to? The 12 sons are all idiots. We're going to have a real big problem. They don't know from left to right, they're spoiled. If this is going to be the case, that if the kingship goes to any one of these, we're going to be in trouble. So they quickly decided, let's go back to the slave uh, trade and let's get the boy back off him. And they brought back the, the slave trader and they brought back the king. They put him on the throne, they made him king, they apologized and so forth. The slave trader said to the viziers, give me my money, you took, paid 400 dirhams for him. They said, no, 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 he's a king, you can't ask for this, go away. So the king was such an honest person that he said, a negus who now became the king said, pay this man 400 dirhams, otherwise he has the right to take me back as a slave. So this was the honesty of this individual. So Abyssinia now became the safe haven for the Muslims. And you know for how long? Well, those Muslims never returned from Abyssinia until Muhammad won at the Battle of Khaybar. That was 13 years in Makkah, then four years in Medina, and then the Battle of Khaybar happened. So nearly 14 years. That's how long they stayed in Abyssinia for. And they will settle there and they spoke the language and so forth. And they waited patiently for the time to come. There came even a point that in, uh, in, in, the, in the land of Abyssinia, the Negus was being challenged by someone. The war was going to happen and the, and the Muslims began to panic because that was their protection. But by the will of Allah, Allah protected the Negus and he won that, that war. So the time came eventually when Muhammad did come to Khaybar. Jafar ibn Abu Talib would then left. And he took all the Muslims with him and they joined up with Muhammad Sallam at a later stage. When you start to think about all of these events that happened in Abyssinia, there's a couple of lessons that you need to learn about here. So first of all, for those Muslims who took refuge, this refuge stage isn't, like I said at the beginning, isn't that you're taking the easy way out. Allah SWT treats the sanctity of life very important. So even the rule in Sharia itself is that the sanctity of life overrides anything in Sharia as well. So if you need to protect yourself, your life and your dignity, then this comes first. These people didn't run away from Makkah, but they wanted to carry on practicing their religion. They were unable to do that. Other people, they didn't have the choice. The slaves were kept there. They didn't have their freedom. And the other Muslims that were there, they had the protection of their families. But they carried on doing what they had to do and the dawah. But the hostility carried on. It just intensified continuously. But while those Muslims were in Abyssinia, they carried on their dawah. And it wasn't just the 80 that became that were Muslims there. There were people that they gave dawah to. Even the negus himself became Muslim. And the negus even sent his own nephews when they went back to Khaybar with the Muslims to serve the Prophet Muhammad And we know that because when they went to Khaybar, and the two nephews of the Negus were there. When they sat with Muhammad Sallam, Muhammad Sallam got up to serve them food. And they got up. They're like, no, no, no. We will serve. He said, no, I will serve because of the honor and the dignity you gave to my companions. Such that there's, there's no, none of this hierarchy system that worked. So seeking that kind of refuge is acceptable, except for the, the emigration for us is a little bit different. Now, we are kind of like falling in the same situation. For us as Muslims... When I talked about 
having this trust in Allah, having this taqwa, and then deciding what path you want to take. For those people in Makkah, there were cases where they were Muslims who reverted back. And you'll know there were many stories after this, they reverted or they converted back, they chopped and changed. We have situations here with Muslims that even though we live in a, in a, in a land which is non-Muslim, it's non-Islamic land, we have forsaken our own religion, our own belief. We have given it up. When you live in a land like this, which allows you to pr practice your religion, why have we given up our religion? Why have we stopped praying? Why are we reluctant to fast? Why do we not observe the dress code that we're supposed to be observing? Why don't we follow the hukums of Allah when it's time to pray? Why aren't we praying at work? Why aren't we helping the needy? Why aren't we doing these things? We've given up all of this and we've indulged in the traditions and the cultures and the values of what the Quraysh instilled. In the society structure that they had, where they had prostitution, they had cheating in the markets, they had all sorts of stuff that was going on. We have indulged in the same thing. We have given up our own religion. Yet we're not in that situation where we're being persecuted. If you go to some of the Muslim countries in the world today where they are being persecuted, they're holding on tight to the rope of Allah with anything that they can use, any limbs that they can use, even their teeth, their eyelids, whatever, they will hold on to it. And we have been given that freedom and we have sold ourselves. And we continuously come back with excuses. Oh, I don't know. I can't be bothered. Work doesn't allow me to do that. I haven't got time to do it. I went out with meals with my friend. We were at Shisha. I didn't get time to pray Maghrib. Fasting is coming. I can't go to the gym anymore. I can't do it. We, we just, it's like the burden of Islam is so immense on us. It's like we, we just want to get rid of it. But I will tell you something now. We are getting to that time now. From the times that some of the brothers who are my age, when we were growing up, we had to hold on to whatever deen that we had. And in your community, if we misbehaved, our parents would know very quickly. They'll know if you were smoking a cigarette or you were at shisha bar, or you had a girl or a boy or this, every, you will know and that would be it. They would come down a ton of bricks and that in itself was a form of protection. We live in a society now, we openly do it. That the same tradition, the same culture, the same values whether we're Pakistani Muslims, whether we're Palestinians, whether we're Tunisians, whether we're whatever, where our community to protect that, now we openly do this in front of their faces. You are in that state now where nothing will stop you from following Islam. And nothing will stop you from walking away from it. No one will utter a word. And this is the state we're getting into. That we have, we feel like we've got that choice. Nobody will look at us the way we dress. Nobody will look at us what we do. So we feel like we've been completely assimilated. And the problem with this is, is because it wasn't the fact that our community is not protecting us, it's because we have no connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, nothing. The way you treat Allah is the way that Quraysh treated their idols. It just sat there looking pretty with loads of ornaments, with loads of hard and gold and whatever they are, sitting outside the Kaaba and nobody cared. They would just continue doing what they wanted to do. Allah is around you, you know that, but you don't care. And the reason why you don't care is because you have no connection with Allah. You don't have that relationship. You don't know what sort of relationship you're supposed to have with Him. And that is what's going to cause the downfall. And what does that mean for us at the end? It means that the inevitable of the hadith that talks about a time will come 
where the Muslims will completely lose their iman. They will lose it, and I'll paraphrase, they will lose their iman to the point that the only thing, the only residents of Islam that will be left will be like spots of candles around the world. A few that will still have the iman, that will carry on doing what the Prophet did in his early stages in Makkah. Because what did Muhammad say? He said Islam came as a stranger and it will come back as a stranger. And subhanAllah, when you talk to people, they don't know their salah, they don't know their qalma, they don't know this, they don't know that. It is a stranger to the Muslims. Right? This is the stage we're at now. Just give it another couple of generations and we will pretty much there. We'll be done. Time will come when there will be Muslims and they will hear the other and they'll be like, oh, I recognize this. My great-grandfather used to say these words, but they don't know what it is. And the man who said, Abu Huraira, he said, what is this? you telling me the Muslims, well, look how strong we are. We've got Islam everywhere. That people won't even recognize the verses of the Quran or Allah's name. How would they be judged? He said, if they just remember Allah's name, Allah will judge them by this. This is it. This is Because that's all they've been taught. This is all that has been taught. So from this, we learn very clearly that you have to now re-engage your relationship. They went to a foreign land. They went from one. They, up, they gave up everything. It was not easy. You imagine if you have to leave today, you can't take your money from your HSBC account or your NatWest account. You're not allowed to sell your house. You're not allowed to take anything. Just whatever you can carry on your back, you take your wife and your kids and you'll go. That's exactly what happened to the Muslims. It's the things they gave up for the sacrifice, for the, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Otherwise, what was the easy option? You, you can decide now. You can, you can stay in this country and you can pray five times a day and you can do the right thing. We're not even asked to leave and we've already given up this. So we're the Muslims in Makkah who have an option to either practice your religion and face persecution or be isolated by everyone or just join us. And I think 90% of the Muslims have just joined them. We have joined them. We behave like them. So on the flip side, if I was to repeat this whole story, you did the whole thing again, but applied it today, it wouldn't be that we Muslims, we migrated. It would be we gave up our religion. We chose them over Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's the challenge that we've got. So when we go through these events and we go through these stories, you need to understand why do those people sacrifice everything? Because they've got something that you haven't quite got yet. It is that conviction that Allah does exist. For you, it's just a placeholder in your mind. They believed in it 100%. They believed that there is a garden, a paradise that has no ending. That is what they're aiming for. For you, it's just a placeholder, unfortunately. At this stage, you just can't be convinced. Even when it comes to hell, you just can't make it click in your mind. Because for it to click, it's got to connect. It's got to find a little pathway from your mind to your heart. Because if your mind says one thing, your heart says another, you're not in sync. And that's the problem. Now you have a very, you have a very limited time right, to achieve the goal. And that time is your ajr. Whatever you can by the time you die. And if you haven't sorted that problem out, then it's all bets are off and we've got to figure out what's going to happen the day judgment. And that's the seriousness of it. So inshallah, we'll leave it at that. So jazakallah khair.